It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, February the 10th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Thanks very much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock for free on demand on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com, everything right there. You can listen live, many ways to listen live, including on our great affiliates across the country, one of which is 106.3 FM Extra in Atlanta, which is where we are broadcasting today and tomorrow for a really fun event tonight. We'll talk about that a bit more later on. Here on the show today, here's our lineup. In this hour, we will speak with Congressman Peter Meyer, Republican of Michigan. He has a lot to say, including on this pretty brutal inflation report out this morning. Bill Malugin will join us on the latest from the southern border some eye-opening statistics and some changes that also are, I think, fueling critics' absolutely correct concerns about the Biden administration's commitment to the rule of law and our national sovereignty. I mean, these are concerns that are totally valid based on the policies, the rhetoric, and the politics of this administration. Bill Malugin will have a report. Bill Hemmer will also be here, our Fox News colleague, as he prepares to Fly out to the West Coast to root on his Cincinnati Bengals in the Super Bowl on Sunday. We'll catch up with Bill. And here in studio in Atlanta, our colleague Joey Jones will stop by. Looking forward to that conversation about Georgia politics. I mean, again, it's like ground zero of the national fight here in the Peach State. Maybe we'll get to some foreign policy as well with Joey. We'll see. That is all ahead on the show today. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you stats. 77.1 million confirmed cases of COVID in the United States over the last two years, cumulatively during the pandemic. That is a massive underestimation of the real number of cases. But over the last two weeks, the number of cases has come down by 63 percent. Death toll increasing. It's up to 911,072 Americans who have died with or of covid during the pandemic. The Dow way down today. I'm sure Wall Street was not pleased, perhaps a bit spooked by the inflation numbers, which are dreadful. 40-year lows or worsts, I should say. So right now the Dow is down 497 points, trading at 35,270. As we get going, I want to bring you an update on actually the man who is currently on Fox News Channel with Martha McCallum. The governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, racking up a very significant victory yesterday. Now, we had told you a little bit earlier in the week about kind of a surprise outcome in the Virginia Senate. And listen here, because I think this has significant national implications. The White House has responded. We'll get to that sound in a second. But we told you about how in Virginia, the state Senate is run by Democrats. 
The Republicans barely took the lower house back over. They were not expected to, but they did. Yunkin won and his whole team at the top of the ticket. But it is still a 21-19 Democrat majority in the upper chamber. However, their version in Virginia of Joe Manchin has made it very clear in recent days he's done with the mask mandates and forcing kids to wear masks in schools. And he put out a few statements saying, I really have had enough of this and I'm going to vote with the Republicans. And you could get a 2020 tie, win some Sears. The Republican lieutenant governor could come in, break the tie and give the force of law and statute and have that reinforce the executive order from Governor Yunkin that some of these blue Democratic districts are trying to resist. So that vote on that amendment on parental choice for masking in schools in Virginia, it was not 20 to 20 with a tie-breaking vote. It was 29 to 9. The dam broke on Democrats in the Senate, and they split. So that was a big win. However, this is a technicality. Just follow me here because I think it's important. The technicality was that was just an amendment to a bill that passed. Then yesterday had to vote on the bill itself, which would determine whether or not Yunkin will get the chance to sign it. This was a lot closer. Some of the Democrat senators who had voted in favor of the amendment turned around and voted no on the actual bill itself. But not enough of them did. Two Democrats switched sides or went across the aisle and it passed 21 to 17. It will pass the House of Delegates run by the Republicans. It will go to the governor's desk and Glenn Youngkin will sign this bill into law. What does the bill do? Not only does it enshrine the executive order and make it the law in Virginia, which would take a huge legal sort of element or core argument out of the available options for the resistance counties. They're saying, oh, well, the governor's executive order doesn't really count or we don't have to abide by it. We don't have to obey it because the state law says something else. Well, they're changing the state law. It's going to pass both houses. It's already passed the tougher one. The Democrat held one. Youngkin's going to sign this thing. So you've got parental choice where parents can decide if their kid wears a mask in school. If you want your kid masked up for whatever reason, good reason or probably, in my opinion, a bad reason, but if that's your kid, that's your choice, you make that call. If you don't want your kid wearing a mask for eight hours a day in school, you as a parent in Virginia will be free to make that decision. That is a huge win, but that's not all. What this bill also does, and this might be why some of the Democrats who had voted yes on parental choice then turned around and voted no on the bill itself. This bill, soon to be law in Virginia, does not allow virtual schooling days to count as instruction days toward the state mandated minimum. So basically what this law is going to do is make sure and guarantee Classroom instruction will take place in open schools in person. And this failed experiment of virtual learning, which has been a disaster for so many kids, that will not count toward the days that you need to teach kids based on Virginia law. That is another huge win in this bill. I mean, Glenn Youngkin ran on this stuff. He won because of parents People in the suburbs sick of this. They attacked him for it. They ran negative ads against him. They said, he's going to get rid of masks in schools. Yeah. And then 
he won. Now, he's not banning masks in schools, I'll remind you. He's getting rid of the requirement. One more wrinkle on this that you might find interesting. And I understand I usually don't open with, like, the intricacies of Virginia law. But because I think this is now a battleground with implications for the country, we're focused on it. Here's an interesting quirk. There is a provision in Virginia law where a governor can decide that there there's like an emergency situation, an emergency provision where a bill is needed sufficiently to be implemented immediately. Because the way that this would work is even if Youngkin signs this bill, it wouldn't go into effect immediately. There would actually be a period of time where Virginians would have to wait. But if Youngkin says and they've indicated his team has said, yes, we're going to use this emergency provision. He gets to send the bill right back to the legislature where they just have to pass it with simple majorities one more time, which allows that law to then go into effect right away. Now, in the past, it took a super majority for the legislature to agree to that. That was a control on the governor's powers in Virginia. But guess what? When the Democrats took over everything for the first time in a long time in Virginia, Right. They were riding the anti-Trump resistance wave. Democrats were swept into power in Virginia all across the state. They came in and with their majorities, they wanted to jam through a bunch of their left wing stuff on guns. You go down the list. Climate change. They wanted to put in a sweeping leftist agenda in Virginia. And in order to do that and to get stuff on the books immediately, guess what? The Democrats decided in their arrogance that they were going to change the rules. And get rid of the supermajority function. So they just need a simple majority so they could just railroad through whatever they wanted to. So that's what they did for Governor Blackface. So the Democrats changed the rules. And guess what? Here we are just a short while later. And now it's going to be used by the Republican governor to force these recalcitrant school districts to allow parents to make choices on masking. Funny how that works. It sort of has shades of the filibuster and the nuclear option in the U.S. Senate where Democrats are constantly short-sighted and power-hungry, and they do things because they want to get their agenda through now, 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 and they don't think about what might happen in the future. Well, guess what? Glenn Youngkin's going to have the chance to throw that right back in their faces while taking masks off the faces of many kids around the Commonwealth of Virginia. That is an extra delicious element of this win. And as I've said, I hope Glenn Youngkin is given the opportunity to tout all of this at a State of the Union address response. I think he should get it for the Republicans. It's March the 1st. Do it in Richmond. Pack the House. Pelosi, I guess, isn't going to allow a bunch of people into the chamber. It's going to be mostly empty. That's at least the plan, apparently. Send every Republican who wants to down to Richmond to cheer on Yunkin and really distinguish between these two parties when it comes to normalcy and following data and science. Republicans on these issues are in favor of those things. The Democrats are lagging behind. So over at the White House, they were asked about this. And Jen Psaki is out there trying to explain why, well, what the Republicans are doing and have done in these states on mass mandates and restrictions, that's totally different than what these Democratic governors are now doing, trying to catch up. The science hasn't changed. The politics have changed. The White House is still shackled to these totally, I'd say, outmoded, not scientifically based CDC recommendations. 
and they're going to be stuck with that for a while, it looks like. But some of the Democratic governors are saying we are getting crushed under this stuff. We have to at least make it seem like we're making a change. And what the White House is trying to do is do their best to give cover to the Democratic governors for ignoring the CDC, right? That's what the Democratic governors are doing here. They are ignoring what the CDC recommends, and they're doing their own thing. When Republicans have done that, the White House has gone nuclear on them. And, you know, Biden calling it Neanderthal stuff and Saki's attacking Ron DeSantis all the time. Oh, but the Democratic governors ignoring the CDC, that's okay and that's different. And Saki tried to explain why. She actually has a point. It's just not a point really in her favor. In cut three, listen. Well, I would say there is a distinct difference between standing in the way, uh, which Ron DeSantis did, or Governor DeSantis, I'll I'll give him his full title, um, of teachers, uh, school administrators, and others taking steps to protect the students and their school communities. There's a difference between standing in the way of it, threatening to pull back funding, and allowing for local school districts to make choices, which is what a number of these states are doing. So she's acknowledging that the Democrat governors here lifting some mandates, and some of them, by the way, aren't doing it for schools yet, which is crazy. That's not necessarily going to allow parents to make these choices because local neurotic left-wing officials can still prevent them from having that choice. Whereas Ron DeSantis in Florida mandated parental choice, as now is going to be the case in Virginia as well. That is, I would say, a strong argument in favor of what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida. No, the White House doesn't think so. They think, oh, we have to protect the children with masks, even though that's not what the science actually shows. They just keep repeating it because they want it to be true. They can't cite data because it's not true. And by the way, it is not accurate to suggest, as I think was implied there, that in Florida and other places, DeSantis is standing in the way of people wearing masks. DeSantis is standing in the way of people forcing everyone else to wear masks, including children. And there is a big difference. I feel like can we go back and teach people the meaning of words? There's a difference between a mandate and a choice. And you can be in favor of someone making a choice for themselves without forcing that choice on every single person, especially when the data doesn't back it up. Same thing on Virginia. Saki trying to make this distinction cut 17. What is the White House view on these kinds of announcements, given that in Virginia, Governor Youngkin faced a lot of pushback from Democrats for making similar changes to the mask? policy. Well, they they weren't actually that similar because what happened here in New Jersey and uh, and a couple of other states you mentioned is that uh, they pulled back the requirement. They didn't make it more difficult for schools, school administrators, local officials to keep requirements that they made a determination would keep their schools safe. But they don't keep schools safe. So, yes, they are making it harder for anti-science harmful things to be imposed on children. That's the point. And it passed in a huge bipartisan vote in the Virginia Senate. That's something that the White House apparently can't really grapple with or wrap their heads around. One of those blue counties, the resistance counties, by the way, fighting Yunkin, Fairfax, their officials have now come out and said, "Okay, I guess we'll start to think about off ramps for the kids in masks in schools. We're looking at April. And what's nice about what Yunkin's doing in this vote Too late. Sorry, guys. You had a chance to follow some science. April, are you kidding me? 
They have to wait two more months for absolutely no reason? No. Too little, too late, it's going to be the law. And those parents will have that choice despite whatever these officials want. Sorry. That's good news. Oh, one more thing. I saw this headline made me chuckle. In Washington state, the governor out there, Inslee, this left-wing Democrat, he's announced that they're going to lift their outdoor mask requirement February 18th. So isn't that exciting? More than a week from now, the citizens of Washington state will have the great privilege of not living under an outdoor mask mandate. It's just totally antithetical to science. It is superstition. And it's amazing that these Democrats were being so munificent. Look at how how benevolent we are. We're going to allow you to free face outdoors in, in eight days. You're welcome. Fight these people tooth and nail. It's the Guy Benson Show from Atlanta. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. We know that with um, Omicron, it's actually more severe in children than in adults. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was some false deceitful misinformation on covid from this guy eric feigl ding who's one of the most hysterical covidians out there and is a constant source of over-the-top hyperbolic fear-mongering misinformation he said that on Mehdi hassan's show he's an msnbc guy is that going to get flagged for misinformation by social media does that only go one way here's another one baltimore teachers union they tweeted out a piece Quote, face masks keep kids safe from COVID-19 and keep schools open. There's no evidence they harm kids developmentally. False. That That whole statement is wrong and misinformation. Will they get flagged by Twitter or social media for spreading falsehoods about COVID? Or is that only a phenomenon that happens in the other direction? Meanwhile, I saw this. The Oscars this year will not require a vaccine of COVID to get in, which I think is the right call. The Hollywood celebrities are deciding we're not going to require vaccine papers to attend the Oscars. Oh, but in Washington, D.C., if you're not obeying Mayor Bowser and her show me your papers orders, they're going to shut down your restaurant. Sorry, blue collar workers. The double standards are amazing. Hollywood can do what it wants. Blue collar workers can get bent. That's the modern left. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. You approve of President Biden's job performance. Well, look at how bad these numbers are for the president. Only four in 10 Americans, 41% at the moment, approve of his job performance. Nearly six in 10, 58% disapprove. That's a tough number early in a midterm election year uh, for the president of the United States. Now, why is this happening? This is fascinating. We asked people, what has President Biden done for you that you approve of? 
56% of Americans, nearly 6 in 10 Americans, that means a decent amount of Democrats said nothing. They disapprove of everything that has happened. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. That was John King on CNN breaking the news to the CNN viewership about the results of a new CNN poll that's going to make a lot of CNN viewers, I mean, to the extent that they exist, very sad. A brutal poll. Another one for President Biden. 58% disapproval in the CNN poll. And that second part of what he said, they gave them like a buffet, a menu of options. Of these things, what is something that you approve of that helped you that Joe Biden has done? And the number one answer, the majority answer, 56% was nothing. And then comes today's inflation report, worst in 40 years. Joining me now to discuss all of this and more is Congressman Peter Meyer, representing Michigan's third congressional district since 2021. He was elected in the 20 election, and he is a Republican. Congressman, great to have you back here. Thank you for having me on, Guy. Well, the American people's assessment collectively of this administration and this president obviously is quite dim. I think we know some of the reasons why. That second data point that we highlighted is, I think, particularly brutal, kind of twisting the knife where most Americans say there's nothing that they approve of from this president so far. I just wonder what you make of that based on your experience thus far in the House and your time in Washington. Yeah, I mean, again, this is my first term. I've only been in office for a little more than a year, but I've just been blown away by how many missed opportunities to actually get something done to show that this administration and the majority Democrat entities in both the House and the Senate, right? I mean, it's 50-50 with Kamala Harris having the tiebreaker in the Senate and Nancy Pelosi has a 5 seat majority. You know, those are the metrics that could produce some good bipartisan legislation. But instead, they're focusing more on keeping every single Democrat from the furthest left, you know, squad progressive to, to the mansions and cinemas in the world. They're trying to get them on the same page, and it's an impossible task. So instead of trying to get something good done, they hold out for perfect, they wind up with nothing, and as a result, you know, the American people suffer the consequences of these bad policies, and that's borne out in the polls. I yeah, mean, none of this should come as a surprise to them. I also feel like if they had gotten more, quote unquote, accomplished, the polls could actually be worse because the stuff that they were trying to pass and were unable to do so was unpopular. Right. The the crazy election takeover that they want to kill the filibuster in the Senate to pass build back better. Last I saw NPR poll had 41 percent approval with even lower among independents. I think that they're also telling themselves, the progressives are, this this fairy tale, this fiction, that if only we had done more left-wing stuff faster, and if not for Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, then our fortunes would be better. I think there's a strong case their fortunes would be worse. Oh, I mean, just imagine the, the consequences of some of the chaos it would produce. I mean, even H.R. 1, you know, went from a messaging bill in 2019 to now something that they could theoretically get past, you know, because of the Senate majority and the, well, you know, Democratic president and election administrators. And even the ACLU were like, whoa, 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 we, we have really strong concerns here, you know, let alone all of the different components of the Build Back Better that were just cobbled together without really consideration for what chaos it would create. And if you look at the inflation numbers we have now, largely derived from some of that incredible spending, including under the American Rescue Plan, I mean, 
if Build Back Better had passed, those numbers could be double. Right. So you're right. I mean, there was some saving them from themselves, but they kind of get the worst of both worlds where, you know, they've made all of these crazy promises to their base that were unachievable. That's right. And as a result, when they fall on their face, uh, it just looks like the incompetence that it is. By the way, I'm glad that you brought up the ACLU coming out and raising concerns about some of the election takeover bill that the Democrats were trying to ram through. You know something is probably pretty alarming and bad if even the ACLU in its current form, which is turned, sadly, into sort of a Democratic super PAC at this point, if even they are willing to stand up to the Democratic Party, effectively their bosses on something like this, it must be pretty egregious. So a bullet for now has been dodged on that. But inflation, another bullet, is hitting its mark right now in a way that's extremely painful For so many Americans, I saw Senator Manchin put out a statement today pointing to this new report saying, yeah, this is the reason why I'm not in favor of runaway spending. He's still talking about negotiating with his party and trying to get something through, but he is really focused and emphasizing yet again debt, deficits, inflation, all of these concerns. And this continues to be a gigantic one. He sort of saved them, I think, from making the problem even worse. But, Congressman, you anticipated this. I saw there was kind of a flashback that you were highlighting. Eleven months ago, you had some analysis that I know the White House would have poo-pooed and said, oh, what does he know? This inflation is transitory. Well, how's that looking right now? Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, this was one of my biggest concerns around the American Rescue Plan, besides the way which it was cobbled together. I mean, COVID relief had been overwhelmingly bipartisan until Biden came in, Mr. You know, I'm going to work across the aisle, and they just rammed it through on budget reconciliation. Um, it was just astounding to me and showed the bad faith, you know, in just my first you know month and a half in Congress. But you know, we had probably a $1.5 trillion shortfall in GDP because of the pandemic. And we responded to that with six, seven plus trillion dollars of government surplus spending. Right. So you throw all that into the mix and we have a lot of dollars chasing, you know, too few goods trying to figure out where they're going to go. And it's not at all a surprise that's going to create a rise in costs. At the same time, we're going through and manipulating the labor market and making it impossible for companies to do what they need to do to survive. I I do not talk to a single employer or or organization that isn't just terrified of where things are going and are at their wits end with all the different directions they're being pulled in. And so that inflation is an inevitable consequence. And what sort of blows my mind is that, you know, Biden came out and was talking about the inflation today and said, gosh, you know, we're going to work like the devil to bring down inflation. Okay. And like the next sentence out of his mouth is, we need to spend trillions of dollars. Please pass my plan. It's just it's totally self-defeating and contradictory. And the people don't want it. They keep pretending like the American people are clamoring for trillions of wasteful spending uh, in, in the form of these huge Democratic Christmas tree bills. It's not the case. And I think that message just isn't going to work with people. They don't approve of this administration on the economy or on inflation because their policies have made it worse. And if they had their way on everything, would make it even worse than that. Congressman Meyer, I want to ask you about a few other issues here as we just go through a few of them. You represent, as I mentioned, the third district in Michigan. You're probably watching fairly closely what's happening north of your border in Canada. And this whole strike with the truckers, we had a columnist on from the Toronto Sun yesterday sort of explaining the political dynamics up there. 
the prime minister attacking these truckers as a bunch of racists and troglodytes and all that. But this is definitely having an impact on their politics. There are economic considerations here as well, not just for Canada, but for the United States and this bridge that connects Canada with your state. Your thoughts on what's happening there? Yeah, I mean, I've been opposed to these just on high mandates from the very beginning. I mean, God, the truckers sitting alone in their cabs being forced to be vaccinated, you know, where is the science and the rationale or the cost benefit, the risk, the trade-offs there? I mean, it was just ham-fisted from the beginning. You know, so my heart goes out to a lot of the folks who have been working throughout this pandemic while the pajama class was able to shift to Zoom. And exactly. These are the essential workers that, you know, we were, we were clapping for and banging pots and pans for and celebrating and now are really, you know, putting under the thumb here. Uh, you know, but, you know, as you point out, I'm from Michigan. Uh, we have a lot of automotive industry suppliers in our district, um, and it is it's challenging for them. They've already been hit by all of the labor shortages and the, the supply chain issues, the inflation that we were talking about earlier. Oh, inflation's now, hitting the auto industry big time. And semiconductor chip shortages, right? And now they can't even get their goods going back across the border. Um, I, I do have to point out the irony that a lot of Democrats who, you know, raise their fist and pump and say good trouble and, and we're celebrating, you know, protests as, as, you know, peaceful expression, you know, now we're advocating for the National Guard to be called. You know, crush them, um, crush the workers. I, I mean, we, it's a dark moment when, you know, which protests get the National Guard called on them seem to be determined by whoever won the past election. But, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, the administration in Canada looks at how they can make sure that they're not being they're not just blindly ignoring legitimate concerns that folks have and that their policies are being fine tuned and aren't just looking at everything with a hammer. So I'm again, my, my heart goes out to a lot of the folks. And, and I think that frustration is is entirely understandable, you know, but we're having issues with a lot of uh, nursing staff on the east side of Michigan who, you know, work in the U.S., live in Canada, you know, use that to go back and forth. You know, it's a very vital international. Yeah, I think you just problem, kind of so. you just need to lift some of these restrictions and some of these yeah. mandates and that solves the problem. And we'll see if anyone decides yeah. to blink here. Congressman, one of the promises we've made here to our audience is we were not going to let go of certain stories even if they're, they've sort of passed from the, the transitory headlines. Immigration is one of them, the border crisis. Another is Afghanistan. Uh, and you have really focused on the issue of Afghanistan, the people that we left behind, the, the, uh, the broken promises that are just littering that country right now and continue to be, I think, a stain on our country. If you can give us maybe a status update on what you're learning about what's happening, some of those people that we left behind, and then as we look at Ukraine and what Russia's considering right now and seems to be very much planning to do, how much how much do you think Putin takes into consideration the Biden administration's Afghan policy as they consider what the US may or may not do by another provocation elsewhere? Yeah, I think I'll touch on, you know, where it comes to Putin and his estimation of the Biden administration, you know, he looks at them as folks who have no real strategy, no real understanding, and are just trying to get through the day, right? There's nothing long-term. And, 
you know, I, I can make arguments both ways on whether or not it would benefit Putin to invade or if he's benefiting just from the attention he's getting by threatening to invade. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, nobody's looking at the Biden administration and saying, wow, there's a force to be reckoned with. And I think that is very dangerous when you're dealing with autocratic you know, bodies and, and dictators like Putin, like Xi. You know, they do not look at the U.S. as a force, as something to fear, but rather, you know, a, a, a slumbering you know, dithering body that they can take advantage of and maneuver around. And so that is incredibly dangerous. You know, when it comes to Afghanistan, uh, I mean, we we continue to, to fail the Afghans that we left behind. Uh, I mean, we have tens of thousands of folks that are at risk. Uh, I was talking with some folks at the State Department yesterday, and, and I had to stop them at one point in the call. And I said, you know, you said these exact same things to me in September, right? Months and months and months have passed, but the President Biden from the very beginning has looked at Afghanistan as an utter distraction from what he hoped to accomplish at home. And frankly, at this point, he should try to be doing some good and repairing the damage done in Afghanistan because there are no good headlines at home between inflation and those poll numbers. But instead, he just continues to let this problem fester, thinking we can ignore it. But like with inflation, like with all of these terrible policies, you can only try to spin reality for so long before it catches up with you. It caught up with us in the catastrophic withdrawal. It's catching up to us with this government spending around the inflation that we're seeing. And it's just catching up to us with the massive big government policies. So they need to stop confusing the medicine for poison, right? I mean, the idea that government intervention will be the solution, well, a little bit of poison didn't kill the patient, so let's just keep up in the dose. I mean, it is not going to end well until they reckon with reality. But it's not – I think it's never too late. Uh, it may be too late to save them from losing the majorities in the House and the Senate. Yeah, it, it might – well, the, that reckoning might have to come – the reckoning might have to come in November at the hands of voters because I don't think it's going to happen uh, on their own, with the Democrats on their own volition. Final question, Congressman, and you just mentioned it, right, the strong likelihood that Republicans are going to have a good election in November, uh, expected to win back the House – We'll see about the Senate, but things are looking good at this moment. It's just so bad for the Democrats out there. And yet, within Team Republican, within House GOP, you have the former president almost on a daily basis putting out statements attacking fellow Republicans, attacking Mike Pence, attacking Mitch McConnell. You have the RNC censuring several Republican members for their participation in the January 6th committee and the way that they described January 6th is like legitimate political discourse. I mean, that's not what the riot was. I don't know why they decided to use that verbiage. And I know the RNC is trying to say that's not really what the resolution meant. But there was a, a censure that did pass. You would have people who are maybe on the other side of that of that disagreement saying, well, you have Republican members who are giving aid and comfort to Pelosi and the Democrats by participating uh, or through their participation, I should say, in this whole process, which is a sort of a sham committee. It does seem like there's a lot of finger pointing and infighting within the Republicans right now, which can't be helpful electorally. I wonder what you make of all of that. No, I think back to, to the 2020 election and so many Democrats, especially after defund the police, were like, listen, guys, all we have to do is not be crazy, right? We can do this. We just have to not be crazy. And the thing that just frustrates me, I mean, the censure resolution, how is that helping us retake majority? How is that helping us get to a governing position? How is that helping us pass legislation, right? It's a distraction and an own goal when we just keep shooting inside the tent rather than figuring out 
we have a lot more in common than divides us, so let's look at those things and drive forward. Well, and it's right? not like let's there aren't other not- really important things to oppose, right? I mean, if if Republicans were bored and there was nothing else out there, that'd be one thing. But there is a Democratic government right now, unified control of Washington, trying to do catastrophically bad things. And to me, the job of the opposition is to oppose that and not focus on internal squabbling that's backward looking. But that's just me. It sounds like you probably agree mostly with that sentiment. Congressman Peter Meyer, Republican, Michigan, our guest on The Guy Benson Show. Congressman, always appreciate it. Let's talk again. Looking forward. Thank you, Guy. Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Extra heads up if you're in Texas right now. If you're a Texas listener, maybe in our affiliate in Dallas or elsewhere. There's a man running for governor in your state. Beto O'Rourke. Robert Francis O'Rourke is his given name. He goes by Beto. Right, he tried to become a senator. He failed at that. Then he tried to become president. He failed at that. Now he wants to be your governor. And this is a man who will say anything to get elected. Exhibit A. He was asked about guns and gun policy just this week. And here's Beto O'Rourke now in 2022 trying to get Texans votes. Cut 14. I'm not interested in taking anything from anyone. What I want to make sure that we do is defend the Second Amendment. I'm not interested in taking anything from anyone. Let's defend the Second Amendment. That's Beto O'Rourke now. How about Beto O'Rourke 2019 running for the presidency in the Democratic primary? Remember this? Cut 15. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. Can we play those back-to-back, 14, then 15? I'm not interested in taking anything from anyone. What I want to make sure that we do is defend the Second Amendment. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against anymore we see you Beto what a fraud another hour coming up live from the most powerful city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative Guy Benson show From our affiliate in Atlanta, 106.3 FM Extra, it's the Guy Benson Show and a brand new hour here on this Thursday. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast always free of charge on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes way down today, finishing in the red. Down 526 points, closing at 35,241. And I think the market's certainly reacting to the dreadful inflation number. Consumer prices went up 7.5% in January, setting another four-decade worst. It's the worst number in terms of rising inflation since 1982, before I was born. So some of those wage gains wiped out by the rising costs of almost everything. It's painful for the American people, and some of that pain reflected today on Wall Street. We're going to get to our guest here in just a second, but to set up our discussion with Bill Malugin, our colleague, I want to read to you from a piece written by Spencer Brown, my colleague over at townhall.com, 
earlier today, the Biden administration has changed the mission statement of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. So the previous mission statement said this, quote, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services administers the nation's lawful immigration system, safeguarding its integrity and promise by efficiently and fairly adjudicating requests for immigration benefits while protecting Americans, securing the homeland, and honoring our values. Well, the lawful immigration piece of that has now been removed. So has protecting Americans. So has securing the homeland. So any element of that mission statement that alluded to law enforcement and enforcing our sovereign territory and the laws that are on the books, those have been eliminated. Now they have a new one. USCIS upholds America's promise as a nation of welcome and possibility with fairness, integrity, and respect for all we serve. So now it's feel-goodery about openness and welcomeness, and that's part of the American creed. But we're also a nation of laws. Those references deleted. Last time we spoke to Bill Malugin, our colleague at Fox News, a national correspondent, on the Biden border crisis that he's covering more closely than anyone in television, he talked about a collapse in morale among rank-and-file law enforcement officials, border enforcement officials. And I can imagine why that might be the case, where they're not only being told not to really enforce the law efficiently, their higher-ups are changing the mission statement to basically delete the parts that have anything to do with actually enforcing, which is what a lot of these men and women of all races signed up to do. With that, let's get to Bill Malugin. Bill, it's good to have you back here. Hey, thanks for having me back. I just wonder your reaction, just from a reporter standpoint, not your opinion, but how you think this might seem like a small thing, the changing of a mission statement, but I would be willing to bet that will probably percolate within some of the communities that you cover. And I wonder how you think that small detail might play among Border Patrol, for example. Oh, well, it's just more of the same if you think about it. I mean, look what happened to ICE's mission statement, right? I mean, they used to be the agency tasked with uh, removing illegal aliens from the country and tracking down criminals and removing them from the country. Now, you know, I talk to ICE agents all the time who tell me they feel like they've been turned into a glorified, you know, travel booking service because uh, their enforcement and removal operations branch, ERO, they're now the ones who are mass releasing single adults all over the place, like what we saw in Brownsville and San Antonio Airport. That is the direct opposite of what they signed up to do. Then, yes, you look at Border Patrol. They signed up to be driving you know, up and down the border in ATVs and trucks looking for uh, cartel members smuggling drugs into the country or criminals trying to sneak in and camouflage clothing. What are most of them doing now? They're social workers holding clipboards, doing paperwork as Uh, hundreds of family units show up in their patrol area every single day, and there's not nearly as many of them uh, patrolling the front line. Now we have this new, you know, USCIS, who they're the the agency tasked with uh, conducting interviews with migrants for their asylum claims, and they have now basically wiped out all language in their mission statement that has anything to do with upholding the law. Yeah, security Uh, enforcement, that's out. Yeah, and it's just more, I mean, keep in mind, when Joe Biden was a candidate, remember what he said on the debate stage, we should surge the border. We should surge it. If people want to come here, they should come. Um, And that's exactly what happened. Let's take a look back 
at some of these statistics, and Fox has been reporting this today. You were tweeting about it earlier. These are preliminary data pieces from ICE. You just invoked ICE. This, I think, is pretty extraordinary, and I want people – it's much easier to explain on TV when you can put a graphic up. But if folks will just listen to these numbers, last fiscal year, in fiscal year 2020, there were 458,000, so, you know, getting close to half a million encounters of illegal immigrants at the border, almost getting in the ballpark of 500,000 encounters. There were, in that same fiscal year – about 186,000 deportations of illegal immigrants out of the United States. So 458,000 encounters, 185,000 deportations. Now, let's talk about fiscal year 21. This is the Biden administration. There were 1.7 million encounters with illegal immigrants. So we are now more than tripling that number. 1.7 million encounters up from 458,000 the previous year. And deportations down to 55,590. So the illegal immigrant encounters at the border more than tripled under the Biden administration, primarily in fiscal year 21, but deportations were cut by way over half over that same period of time. So illegal immigration massively spiking up, deportations, expulsions, way, way down. Bill, that really tells the story, doesn't it? It does. And actually, if you go deeper, when you look at those fiscal year 2021 deportations, you know, about 56,000, only about 22,000 of them were under President Biden. Keep in mind, a few months of that fiscal year were still when President Trump was in office. And if you take those, those, those few months under Trump, I think it's like 30,000 or so were still under Trump. So the number that the Biden administration actually, you know, deported from the country is much, much smaller than that 56,000. And part of that reason, if I'm not mistaken, Bill, is that the department at DHS and the Biden administration, they have put out memos saying we are going to de-emphasize deportation in general, and we are going to create new categories of illegal immigrants, even those who are convicted of additional crimes, new categories of those who are not eligible for deportation. And I saw, just as one example, we had someone scrawl swastikas all over Union Station in Washington, D.C. the other day. Turns out it's an illegal immigrant of Mexican uh, heritage. It's American, actually a Mexican national who had been deported previously, who'd been convicted of multiple uh, crimes previously, not eligible for deportation under these new rules from the Biden administration. I mean, that's, that's one guy, but I think that might help illustrate the approach under team Biden. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. I mean, they've, you know, they've completely limited who and where and when ICE can go after folks. There's no more workforce and site, uh, you know, workforce site raids, that sort of a thing. They really only want them going after aggravated felons and national security threats. And secretary Mayorkas himself just said a few weeks ago that just being in the country illegally is not grounds for being deported. And another thing is um, one of the reasons why the numbers are going to be lower is because a lot of people have been removed via Title 42. Expulsions don't count 
as um, removals or deportations. It's a different classification. However, that doesn't matter because Title 42 also existed in fiscal year 2020. That was the first year of the, t- the pandemic. So you look at fiscal year 2020 and 21, both had, had Title 42, and you yep. see the difference in the numbers. You see the difference. One is I, b- I believe you said a hundred and uh, what is it, hundred and eighty-five thousand or something like that, or one hundred and sixty-six thousand. The yes. other is just fifty-six thousand. That's right. Yeah, you nailed it. So, yeah, those, those are the numbers. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you you can't you can't blame it. You can't blame the, blame the low numbers on Title Forty Two because both presidents had Title Forty Two under their administrations, and both years have drastically different numbers. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you go from one point seven million encounters. To I think about 458,000. So you have a massive, massive, massive increase in migrant encounters at the border and a massive drop in enforcement and removals from the country. And that just goes to show the it reflects the difference in priorities and the difference in beliefs between those those two administrations. I mean, yeah, under is... President under President yeah under President Trump, I mean they were Title 42ing basically everybody, even families, kids, that sort of a thing. The Biden administration has openly said they're not going to send any kids back. They're not going to send most families back. And we start wondering why all these unaccompanied minors start showing up. One of whom you had a photo that you posted on your uh, Twitter just yesterday. Her face was blurred out. Five-year-old girl by herself. She's in the Rio Grande sector. That's just one of many, many illegal immigrants coming across in that sector alone where you've been doing a lot of your reporting. Talk about the numbers down there in that particular sector, Bill, because I think that there's maybe an expectation that with the return of Remain in Mexico and a few other things, maybe this problem might start to get mitigated a little bit. But it sounds like the data is getting worse. If we're being honest, Remain in Mexico is doing nothing. It is being slow walked by the Biden administration, very slowly re-implemented. We've had 1.7 million encounters, and you know how many people have been put back into the MPP program? About 300. That's less than a drop in the bucket. That's Three, not going 300 to people, 300 humans. Correct. Correct. Wow. Out of out of 1.7 million. So that's 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 not you know that's not going to do anything. That's a joke. And. And yes, you mentioned those those two. There, there are actually two little girls, one on Wednesday and one yesterday. A five-year-old Guatemalan girl came across in Del Rio sector completely alone, no parents, no nothing. Then the day after, a five-year-old Honduran girl came across with three other children, also no parents, no adults, no nothing. And Del Rio sector is actually getting hit harder than where we are right now in Rio Grande Valley. Del Rio sector, uh, since October 1st, their numbers are already up over 215% over last year. And last year was the record-setting year, the highest in history. So it's getting worse. Um, And here where we are in the RGV, we're starting to see – January was kind of a slow month because it was pretty chilly out here. But this week we're starting to see the return of those famous images where those mass family units are showing up every morning, every night, walking down that road and giving themselves up. And once again, border agents are having to you know, be busy processing and doing the paperwork, and that pulls agents off the front line. Bill Malugin, last question. I saw a post on social media from one of the leaders of Border Patrol who was flagging a significant arrest at the border – Uh, They encountered and apprehended a man, Jose Vasquez Ramirez, who was previously convicted. He's a Mexican national. He was previously convicted in California of raping a child. He was, I guess, deported, the convicted felon. Now he's come back into the country. They've arrested him. The good news is they got him. The bad news is, and I just want to clarify, this is not to say that most illegal immigrants 
who come across the border are rapists or murderers or, you know, are a danger to public safety. That is not true of the vast majority of them. But when you're talking about this volume of people, you are going to have within that group extremely dangerous people like this. They caught him, but there are tens of thousands of gotaways every month, people who don't get apprehended. That is a public safety element of this bill. And I know people don't like to talk about that uh, in some quarters, but it is undoubtedly, I think, unavoidably part of this story. Yeah, I know you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, there are an estimated half a million gotaways last year. And through sheer volume, yes, you're going to have bad people coming through. It's just a statistical certainty, whether it's criminals or pedophiles or murderers or gang members, MS-13, every single day in different Border Patrol sectors, we're hearing about these arrests. And there's also, as we've seen a couple of times, possible risk of terrorists coming across. And I've had a Freedom of Information Act with DHS in for months now requesting how many hits on the TD, uh, terrorist screening database have come at the border in 2021. I don't need to know names or any law enforcement sensitive information, just how many hits have there been? And no response so far. And I know mm. politicians have been asking that same information. Um, they can't get anything. And you're right. Look, a large majority of the people coming across are just looking for a better job, looking to link up with family. They're not bad people at all. But the bad people take advantage of that because they know Border Patrol is going to be very busy dealing with all these families coming across, and they're going to use that opportunity when those resources are sucked up to bring their drugs across or to run across or do That's something right. else in areas of the border where there is not patrol. And the, the greatest example of that is what happened in Del Rio with the Haitians. When all that craziness happened, basically every agent from that sector got called in to help with processing under that bridge, and there were more than 220 miles of our border left completely unpatrolled, 100 percent unpatrolled. Yeah. And they caught this particular child rapist. And you wonder how many have not been caught and have snuck back into the country. That is an element of this border crisis, whether we want to talk about it or not. Bill Malugin, national correspondent at Fox News. He's been all over this story for a long time. We always appreciate your work and we will talk to you again. I'm sure I'm sure quite soon, Bill. Thank you. Looking forward to it, guy. Thank you. It's the Guy Benson show from Atlanta today. We will step aside. Be right back. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Are we going to talk about this crack pipe story? I guess we are. There's reports out there that the Biden administration was seeking to create some program that they were saying was designed to advance, among other things, racial equity by distributing free crack pipes to drug addicts. Now, let's just set aside whether there's evidence that this type of thing works or whatever. I mean, I remember back during the Obama administration, there were the Obama phones, right, giving away Obama phones. That was a little thing. Now we've moved to Biden crack pipes. It seemed like our national slouch is deepening here. Was it true? There was a fact check by Snopes, which is one of these left wing so-called fact checkers. And the whole fact check industry, it's a little cottage industry. It is in some ways just sort of a lefty scheme. The things that they choose to fact check, the way that they frame things, this is a perfect example. So the claim was that the Biden administration was trying to advance racial equity by distributing crack pipes to drug users. Snopes 
rated this claim mostly false with a big red X graphic. They say, well, it is true that in early 2022, HHS and the Biden administration did require recipients to provide safer smoking kits to existing drug users. They say what's false, though, it was only one component of a broader program. And this was exaggerated and was focused too much upon by outraged news reports. Okay, that's not most that's not mostly false. That is true. That would say it's true, but we don't think it should be that big of a deal and it's being exaggerated, but they call it mostly false. They've since shifted their rating at Snopes to outdated because the Biden team now has clarified they're not going to give away crack pipes within this program. I saw Comfortably Smug said you could call this Build Crack Better. Sounds about right. You have to show vaccine card to get your crack pipe? Probably. Guy Benson show continues. Bill Hammer coming up. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson show, a reminder that our podcast is free every day when the show's over. On demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com. With us now is Bill Hammer, our colleague, co-host of America's Newsroom, Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 Eastern, every morning. That's Fox News Channel. Also, his podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com is Hammer Time. Bill, welcome back. Hey, Guy. How you doing, brother? Good to be back with you. I'm doing well. I was just talking yesterday with a Bengals fan who listened to our interview and was very impressed. They're like, Hammer is not faking it. Hammer is a legit, hardcore Bengals fan. I'm like, oh, I could have told you that. It is not an act. It's not like, you know, a local politician pretending to care about the team. Like, you live and breathe this stuff. Super Bowl's a couple days away. Are you even able to sleep? Uh, barely. <laughs> so when you head That's out great. there? That's a great first question, leaving tomorrow at 2 o'clock uh, out of New York. It's a great first question because I've been trying to get tickets with so many people, family and friends. Uh-huh. And you know what I learned, guy? Don't check your phone after 8.30 at night. Because there'll be a text message from someone who's desperate, and <laughs> the, the the anxiety will overcome you. How are your seats? Are you going to have good seats? Can we spot yeah, you in the solid, crowd? Super solid. No, uh, far side of the field, um, Ram side. I'm trying to change that, but I don't. <laughs> I don't think I'll be successful. I tell you what, guy, this is fun. It is. It has been a great ride. As I told you last time, I'm in the middle of the greatest NFL roadshow that anyone could ever dream of. And so far, so good, but we need one more. Yeah, you need one more. So I want to ask you about this. As a sports fan, if I've got a team in a very, very high-stakes game, some people just thrive on that and they're so excited. I have a level of excitement, but I also have crushing nerves. I get so nervous ahead of these games and then it sort of starts, and here we go. But the buildup, really, the anticipation is great, but it also kind of kills me. Are you that way, or are you just, like, full-blown yeah. joy? No, I love it, but I get nervous, too. Um, look, man, you're, you're, you're talking about – I guess the easiest way to describe this, and I think you and everyone who's listening can understand it. I was born into a winner. I was born into the Big Red Machine, arguably one of the two or three best baseball teams in the history of the sport. 
Paul Brown gets fired from the Cleveland Browns. He starts a franchise in Cincinnati. In the third year of the existence of the team, they're in the playoffs. Paul Brown set that team up, the Bengals, to have one hell of a run during the 1980s for an entire decade. And they had a great run, Super Bowl twice, but they lost both times. So I just assumed that winning was always around me all the time. Yeah. And you realize it's not. <laughs> no. And I tell, it's not I tell a drought. people that story. Yeah, and my buddy my buddy says, Oh man, I was at the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in nineteen ninety four. We beat the Red Wings in overtime. The place was euphoric and we've never been back since. And everybody's got a story to match that. So the point is is that winning is not always around you. It is a gift. It should be cherished. It is like lightning when it strikes. You don't know where or when, but you cannot afford as a fan to miss it. Yeah, and you're not. You're going to be there with, I would imagine, I know it's a home game for L.A. That's their home stadium, and they'll have a presence, obviously, a big presence there. Yeah. I would not yeah. be surprised if Cincinnati showed up in crazy force. Wow. <laughs> I, I wish you were right. It's a long trip, you know. It we're is. Midwestern, we're Midwestern folks, and we, you know, it's, you know, you, what do you want? You want twelve hundred dollars for the plane ticket? You want three thousand dollars for the seat? I mean, it's really expensive. I just, yeah. I think it's going to happen. I think you're going to have a lot of orange in that building. I'm just saying. I'll tell you this: in Nashville, we had fifteen thousand Bengal fans, and in Kansas City, we had fifteen thousand Bengal fans, and I. I it, it's a sight to see when you see people as joyous as they were at that time. It's really, really great. And for people who don't follow sports and don't don't really give it that much credit, I just <laughs> yeah. I just want people to understand that <clears throat> there is great joy to be found when your loyalty is rewarded. I think that's very, very well said. And there's a camaraderie, and you know, people from all walks of life rally around this same thing together when they would maybe never be in the same place in their lifetimes. They come from totally different backgrounds, but in that moment, in that thing, they are like blood brothers, right? And that's that's yeah, the yeah. fan base, not even the team necessarily. Yeah. It's the fan base. So so let's talk about the game because Super Bowl, it's going to be on Sunday. The whole freaking country is watching. Everyone's all stoked for this thing. Everyone's having their parties, but you're sweating the details here. I looked up at ESPN. They asked their experts, right? The majority of their experts are picking the Rams. They're favored in this game. Bengals Good, again are like going to be underdogs. It sort of works for you guys. What makes you so? Here's a two part question. What makes you think that your Bengals are going to win this thing? And then what keeps you up at night that you feel like, okay, that's the thing where I understand why so many people are picking the Rams? Awesome questions. Um, The reason I think we're going to be in it is because we went to Tennessee and beat the number one seed in the AFC. And they were good and they were big and they were strong up front, the Tennessee Titans. Underrated, I would argue. Their front seven on defense was ferocious. They sacked our quarterback, Joey B, Joey Burrow, (laughs) sorry, nine times and they won. Uh, We're down 21-3 in Kansas City. I'm thinking, guy, 
oh my gosh, it's over 41-10. This is a 41-10 game. And they, they went in a halftime. They made adjustments. These coaches haven't made successful adjustments in 30 years. They're doing it every seven days now. I'm blown away by the football intelligence on behalf of the coaching staff and the players. That's number one. Number two, Joe Burrow. I, I just saw a soundbite two hours ago from him saying, yeah, if you want to work out, fine. But, you know, don't post it on Instagram and disappear for four days because then I don't know if it's real. And the, they, these guys play for him because they know of his significant injury 15 months ago, never complained, never pointed a finger, just came back quietly. And these guys know that if Joe Burrow doesn't respect you, you're not playing hard enough. That's a really difficult thing to capture in any line of business. Especially such a young guy, right? To command that respect, he's brand new. So true. He's 25, and he's from Ohio, which we love, too. What keeps me up at night? I think there are very few times when you can have events like these at the highest level where you know going into the event what the strength of one team is and what the weakness is of the other. And the strength of the L.A. Rams is their defensive front. They are fierce and ferocious and fast and strong. And the weakness in the Cincinnati Bengals is their offensive line. And if we can figure out a way to win that battle, we've got a really good chance. Last question, Bill Hammer. When my Northwestern Wildcats won our first bowl game in like 60 years, I think since, yeah. the, since the 1940s, they won the Gator Bowl on New Year's Day uh, 2013. Our fans celebrated like we had just won a world war. I mean, people went crazy. <laughs> and I will admit, I will admit on the air in front of the country, I was so happy I cried. If the Bengals yeah. win the Super Bowl, Bill Hemmer, you going to cry? Likely. <laughs> Likely. <laughs> That's good self-awareness, at least. Absolutely. You should have seen the tears in Kansas City. It was a beautiful moment. Guy, I know you're a sports fan. You're a former sports caster yourself. I know you get it. So, you know, I know that you get where I'm coming from. Oh, yeah. That's I why I wanted about. you on before the game. Yeah. Yeah. And if How you guys win. If you guys win, we're going to have you back. If not, we'll just let you lick your wounds for a while, and we'll have you back soon enough. But we want you back if you guys win. Dana Perino might even watch football for you this weekend. It's the Super Bowl, man, and your Bengals are in it. You're going to be there with a bunch of friends and family. Good luck. Go Bengals. I'm rooting for your state and your city. Right on. Thank you, Guy. Great to be with you. That's Bill Hammer on the Guy Benson Show. Just thrilled for him. It's so exciting. And Burrow, man, how, how can you not like that guy? Sorry, Rams fans. I like you guys, too. We'll be right back. Guy Benson Show, we're back in Atlanta today and tomorrow. Very excited to be here. Also very excited to bring you this story. And boy, oh boy, is this ever just made for Woke Tales. This comes to us via National Public Radio, NPR, funded in part by your tax dollars and mine. They have a story with three bylines. So three of their journalists were working on this one. And this is what the tweet promoting the story says. 
Some white people may choose, and then there is the thumbs-up emoji with the sort of yellow skin, like Homer Simpson-style color, might choose that emoji because it feels neutral. But some academics argue opting out of the explicitly white thumbs-up emoji signals a lack of awareness about white privilege, akin to society associating whiteness with being raceless. And the headline of the story is, which skin color emoji should you use? The answer could be complicated. This is real. I would like to know who pitched this, who greenlit this. We have a lot of issues in this country. We have a lot of problems around the world. And we have National Public Radio doing an in-depth blockbuster report about the racial implications of thumbs-up emojis. We're all communicating with each other like we are like trained monkeys. That involves no actual words, I guess. This is an opportunity, yet another opportunity, for us to obsess about race and racialize everything. And when I saw the tweet, I said, oh, wait, some academics are arguing that this might mean that there's a lack of awareness of white privilege. Well, if the academics are warning, then we all better pay attention. It's just like when the experts have something to say. NPR quoted emoji experts and academics who study these things. Like actual, quote, emoji researchers. What what is that? How do you get that job? And the piece is as totally ridiculous and inane and stupid and I think reflective of our times as you might imagine. So the upshot of it is if you're a white person and you're using thumbs up emojis or emojis involving skin color, I just have some bad news for you. I hope you're ready for this. Just prepare. And if you're not a white person, if you're a person of color, then you're probably in the clear. So congratulations on that within this whole fray. But if you're a white person listening right now, the bad news is as follows. No matter what you do, according to these experts, it's racist. All right. So let's spin the wheel, Jim. Oh, ding, racist. That's the answer. All the options are racist. So the way it works is this. If you choose the white-skinned emoji, thumbs up or hand or face or whatever, you are acknowledging your whiteness, but that inherently entails privilege, right? So you are selecting the white emoji that I guess, according to these researchers and academics, is what you ought to do. But if you have the awareness to know that you ought to do that, that comes with a great amount of responsibility and also guilt because of all of the privilege that you are inherently imbued with as a white person. So I guess that is the least racist option, but it also still kind of means that you're a racist and you know it. Right. So that's option number one. Option number two is the yellow skin option, sort of the default one, right? If you just type, if you have an iPhone and you type thumbs up, 
it offers you that generic Homer Simpson style color thumbs up that pops up and you can select that emoji. It is the default. If you do that, these experts say, you are not aware about your white privilege and you're doing the default setting which associates whiteness with a lack of race. And therefore, you are not aware and you're trying to sidestep the whiteness that you need to be much more cognizant of. So the default setting, racist. And then finally, if you decide to use a darker skinned emoji out of solidarity with people of color, that is also racist. And they quote a researcher named Zara Rahman. Imagine being quoted by NPR as an emoji expert. She argues that the skin tone emojis make white people confront their race as people of color often have to do. She says, when someone who is white uses a brown emoji, there's an issue. Quote, it does signal a kind of lack of awareness of your white privilege in many ways. So being an ally and signaling your attempted allyship by using darker skinned emojis is, let's just say, emoji racial appropriation. To use the default setting is racist. And to use the white setting is, for now, the woke thing to do. But that is also a signal that you have a series of responsibilities in your whiteness. Doesn't that all sound fun to you? I saw this tweet, as I mentioned, and I immediately responded. I quote tweeted it on my thread at Guy P. Benson, simply with a thumbs down emoji. Generic Homer Simpson color. That was my commentary on it. Aren't you thrilled that your taxpayers went to fund the work of these three journalists to bring you this important burning issue of the day? We are a ridiculous society. We are in so many ways unserious. Our competitors around the world, our adversaries, have to look at this type of thing and say, we don't really need to do anything with the United States of America. We just need to wait them out. Because if this is the stupidity that they're engaged in, they're not going to be much of a threat for much longer. Like, I know that's a a very dark way to end this segment, but the point of Woke Tales is to highlight how ridiculous and preposterous this stuff is. And it's a never-ending source of information. Entertainment to some extent, but it's demoralizing. So that's the latest piece of journalism that we needed to bring to your attention. I wonder if we might smell a Pulitzer Prize in the future. Maybe they can somehow factor in or fold in some emoji etiquette into the updated version of the 1619 Project when that gets taught in schools. You know what? I shouldn't be giving them any ideas. So let's just end the segment. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Joey Jones will be here in studio in Atlanta. Looking forward to that conversation. And it is straight ahead.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday from Atlanta, Georgia. In the studios of News Talk 106.3 Extra, our great affiliate here in Atlanta. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. Every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the bells and whistles there, including the free on-demand podcast every day, GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good and expanding, in fact, my inside source at the Long Drink said he's going to be chatting with me soon about their huge national expansion that I'm so excited to bring you details about when they're available. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can find out where the Long Drink is sold near you. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Well, we are joined here in studio in Atlanta by our friend and colleague, Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, host of Fox Nation Outdoors on Fox Nation, and also the podcast, Proud American, at foxnewspodcast.com. Joey, it's always good to see you, especially in person in your home state. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the state of Georgia, uh, the home of champions, if you haven't paid attention. I have paid attention. And you have <laughs> just steps from where we're sitting right now is... Truist Park, home of yeah. the defending World Series champion Atlanta Braves. And then we're uh, not that far of a drive away from Athens, Georgia, home of the national champion Georgia Bulldogs. We talked about that a few weeks ago, and that all went down. I wonder, as a Braves fan, are folks around here nervous about the possibility of this next season sort of going away or at least being curtailed by a lockout? Or is everyone just riding high from the World Series championship? They're like, who cares? I think it's much more of the riding high. I mean, and I think that um, as a Braves fan, we saw them get so close for so long right. that it's like we could celebrate. I mean, if there weren't a season, that means we get to be champions for two years instead of one. We're okay with that. I think we're okay with that. <laughs> Meanwhile, the competition politically in this state is probably more fierce and more crazy than maybe any other state in the country. And control of the U.S. Senate came down to Georgia last time. We remember how that turned out badly the Republicans, awfully close, right? Yeah. Just razor thin <laughs> in the presidential race, then the Senate runoffs. And here we go again. I mean, the governor's race could be down to, you know, a few thousand votes potentially. Senate race is right there and could very much determine control of the U.S. Senate again, potentially, depending how other races go in other states. But it is nip and tuck. You've got a Democratic coalition that's now a machine. They've got a great turnout model for the Democrats in this state. You've got Republicans still sort of with some infighting, but I think angry about what happened last time and wanting to come back and reassert some of the redness of this state. What's your overall read? I know we're a ways out here from this election, but the governor race is fascinating. The Senate race is fascinating. Some of these House races could be really interesting in the Atlanta suburbs. You live here. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? There's a lot happening at once. Demographically, there's a lot changing at once in different areas of the state. And you used to could kind of throw a dot on the map and say, okay, that area is primarily red. That area is doctors and lawyers. This area is blue-collar folks. This area is urban. 
But that's all kind of melded together. You have gentrification on one side. You've got expansion of programs from Atlanta on the other side, providing housing in different areas. Uh, you have the old Fourth Ward of Atlanta that's being uh, kind of taken over by um, uh, high-class white folks. Uh, you know, like stuff like that are happening in these little nuanced pockets that will eventually change the demographics of where everybody is. And then you have Atlanta constantly growing from Kennesaw down to where I live in Noonan now is the Atlanta metro area. And I mean, it encompasses the airport where the airport used to be kind of out there by itself. And with that, I used to be out of town. Now it's town. Exactly. And, and so everything south of the airport used to be somewhere else. Now that's turning into South Atlanta. You have the movie industry, the television industry that's moved into Fayette and Coweta County, which is just south of the airport. And those are the folks that make the races in Georgia high visibility. They're the ones that send a direct pipeline back to L.A. and say, pump your money out here because we want to make this state what and we want it to be. Boy, have they socially. sent their money here. I mean, the amount of exactly. money being raised by Raphael Warnock, the Democratic senator, yeah. by Stacey Abrams. And then you juxtapose that to Marjorie Taylor Greene up in the district I'm from. Uh, you juxtapose that to uh, the two Senate candidates we had on the GOP side uh, trading money when they essentially given the appearance that they were trading money when they weren't supposed to. Things like that. All of this kind of bakes into the same pie. And I think what it becomes is Georgia becomes an omen for states like Texas and even Virginia now with a Republican governor, governor maybe North Carolina. I don't think Tennessee's quite there to where purple is kind of going to be the state of things. It's how you handle it as a party that matters. In other words, do I think two out of every three voters or two out of every three people in Georgia probably lean right either socially in their home or conservatively when they vote? Probably. But do they trust the GOP in Georgia? And that's the problem we have. I think we have the right problem at the wrong time, which means we, we are understanding that the good old boys club that's determined who the elected officials are for so long is not the way to move forward. Unfortunately, we're just doing it when we're our most vulnerable as a as a as a conservative that votes Republican when I say our. Mm. I think that uh, I think that when you have folks like Vernon Jones that jump in and really kind of comes across as more of a grifter than a genuine conservative, and I'm not saying that because I'm against him. That's the appearance he has. When you have people like David Perdue, who's a trusted name in Georgia, but really was very uninspiring in his Senate candidacy, I mean, to the point he didn't even campaign much or well, um, people are going to see through it, and they're going to look for genuine candidates. And we haven't had a lot of Well, it's them. also not helpful, and I'm not taking a position in the governor primary. I don't like to get into primaries generally. Occasionally, I make an exception, and we've had David Perdue on the show. We like him. He was a good senator. We've had Governor Kemp on the show. We like him. I think he's done a good job overall as governor, and I think that he's earned the case to be reelected, but he has a very high-profile challenger now within his own party, the former U.S. senator, backed by the former president. The Democrats, say what you will about the Democrats, and I think this isn't just a Georgia story. The Democrats have all fallen in line in this state, and they turn out for their people, and the Republicans are still sort of circular firing squad. That's not a great recipe at this point to winning power back, but President Biden is so unpopular. I was about to say, we're looking at this in, in this a state. GOP vacuum, right? right? We're not looking at where the Democrats are. Right. The Democrats have their own problems at the Nationally top of the and party. Locally. Correct. Because you have the Joe Biden disaster He's very unpopular in this state. And then I actually do wonder, because we talked about it multiple times on this show, the Stacey Abrams photo op with the kids and the lack of masking. Did that have resonance in this state? Because it got Absolutely. a lot of attention nationally. Absolutely. And, and I think that's 
if Georgia GOP wants to win big, they need to follow the the Yunkin model. I really do. I think they need to make this election so local that you think about how it affects your house and your day. What do parents do first thing in the morning? They either put their kids on a school bus or they take them to school. It's literally the first thing they think about when they wake up in the morning before work. So those things matter. When you drop your kid off at school, watching your kid walk from your vehicle into that building, how you feel about what they're going to experience when they get in there matters. Now, in the state of Georgia, we haven't had mass mandates, not from the state level and very few from the local level, to the point that my sister-in-law, who's a principal, didn't have any shutdowns in her school. It was optional from day one. So so same thing at my son's school. And we've seen the headlines in the newspapers where hospitals are being overrun, and then we learn, hey, they operate with 10% open and 5, 5% was left. So they were at 50%. still, And so we start seeing through some of this. And that's not to say that COVID hasn't been an issue here. I just lost a good friend to COVID who also had a heart attack last year. And so the, the complicating side of it is where I think the Georgians start to call BS and say, you can't put this blanket policy on us when the majority of us aren't susceptible to death by this. And Stacey Abrams' position still, because we talked about it yesterday, she's gone through a lot of different responses to that photo op, first promoting it, then taking it down, sure. then defending it and saying it's outrageous and a lie to criticize her and racist. Then she apologized for it, but she still supports forced masking of children in schools. I think she's going to have to abandon that because people in this state are not going to want to vote for a governor who will put masks on kids for the first time. It's I think it's I think it's interesting, and I think it it makes it a powerful issue for some and a mute point for others because I know how people are, right? We haven't dealt with mandates in this state. And we have a really bad habit as voters of not rewarding those who created the situation we wanted. We kind of overlook those things. In other words, when the wind's already in take hand, it for granted. we take it for granted. And so I don't know if the idea that Stacey Abrams would bring those kinds of policies to the state is really all that effective because I think the majority of people believe even Democrats are ready to move on. Um, but That's why we, I think that photo was so damaging <laughs> Absolutely. For her. It, it, it creates it an issue that wasn't really an issue. I think that um, for – all my own criticisms of Governor Kemp, it's really hard to find a big hole in his policy platform as far as how he's how he's um, governed for Georgians. I mean, I'm sure there's a few things we could look at, but everything from the election law to the resistance on mass mandates to continuing to keep our economy going. I mean, my biggest complaint with Governor Kemp is I wish he and his predecessor thought long and hard about how welcoming they were to the movie industry because I think bringing in tens of thousands of folks from the West Coast – has created some of the problems we have with having two Democratic gov- uh, senators now. And it's helping the state's economy in some <laughs> ways, but are the people showing up and voting Listen, in the opposite America. direction? You can make money a hundred different ways. Do we have to make money by with welcoming Hollywood. the left coast? And <laughs> I say that in jest because I have a lot of friends that are here through that industry and a lot of friends that don't vote the way I do. Um, I just It's an anecdote now, but I, or, or at least a kind of over-the-top statement, but I, I wish people would, would look for – a place to come like Georgia and say, let's not make it where we came from. Jumping from local politics and Georgia politics overseas, I just wonder how you view the whole Russia-Ukraine situation, U.S. troops being moved not to Ukraine. There's no real discussion that you would have U.S. boots on the ground there fighting the Russians, for example. But, you know, people's antenna are up. Sure. And you, of course, served. You are a wounded warrior. When there's a hot spot that's growing and it looks like if Russia gets into a a hot shooting war, you never know what the, you know, the blast could be from that, what the ripple effect could be from that. What are your overall thoughts at this stage? 
I would love to sit here and uh, pontificate on the game of chess with you about our foreign defense strategy, but I have to be honest with you, I, I played checkers. I, I was a boot on the ground, and I can tell you all about combat strategy on a day-to-day. I can tell you about the type of ammunition or munitions and uh, bombs we might face and that kind of thing, but I have no clue when it comes to the overall political strategy if we're winning or losing from one day to the next because the headlines change that fast on this. What I can tell you is this. Our, our government works, our, our demo- representative democracy works in a way that we're able to kind of change everything about every two years, either with a midterm or a presidential election. And the moment our politicians learn that, they learn that they could take status quo, flip it on its head, and call that a platform. And I feel like our 20 years war in Afghanistan was a lot of that. Hey, it's been a couple of years since the American people have really cared about this. Let's just say we're going to make a change and we'll get rewarded for it because we've been doing this war for a long time. And so I don't trust my government to get into conflict because I, I just don't trust it to see anything through. So I don't think by any stretch of the imagination we're going to go to war with Russia. But I think is there an opportunity for a proxy war that costs us a lot of money and at some point blood and treasure? Probably. And that's the kind of thing I'd like for us to stay away from. I would love to see my president use things like this pipeline, like economic sanctions, like some sort of NATO alliance to pressure Russia. But it seems like a lot of talk, you know, no smoke or fire. Um, And I don't know that we're going to get everyone on board with something like that. So at some point we have to understand we don't have a treaty with Ukraine. We have NATO. And uh, if we want to invite Ukraine into NATO, this is the kind of thing we're going to put up with. So we have to have a strategy before we make that a public um, want or desire. And so for too long, back to the Obama administration, we've kind of had this liability out there of how will Russia react to cozying up to Ukraine or, or really any block country that they would love to have back in their in their fold. Um, and we learned it a little bit with Georgia, and we learned it with Ukraine before, and I don't want to have to learn it again. So we have to have a better strategy or a different strategy when it comes to how we care about countries that border Russia and are an ocean away from us. Lighter topic to close, we've got Guys Night Out here in Atlanta tonight. Really excited this event put together by Extra. We were hoping you would join us at the restaurant, but (laughs) you are racing to the airport to head up to New York for... Yeah, I'll be on Gutfeld tomorrow night. There so we go. They scrape the bottom of the barrel every now and then. Oh, stop! And invite me up there to, it's to a make fun bad show. jokes. Yeah, that's a fun show. So that's tomorrow night, Friday, eleven p.m. Eastern. Fox News Channel. Joey Jones will be on with Greg and Cat and company. It's always a blast, and we'll be watching. <laughs> Absolutely, thanks. Joey Jones is our colleague at Fox News, a Fox News contributor, retired Marine. You can catch him on Fox Nation. His podcast is Proud American. Joey, great to see you. Hey, thanks for having me on, and welcome to Georgia. Get some sweet tea and uh, some peaches while you're here. It's always good to be here. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Glad you're here. So last night, I'm settling into my hotel room. I got in, put my bags down, then went and grabbed some dinner with some of the guys here on the team at Extra, some of the sales guys. And we finished up dinner. I went back to the hotel and was getting into bed. And I was checking Twitter, and there were some people tweeting about the Winter Olympics and about this uh, male figure skating performance that was highly anticipated by, I guess, the gold medal frontrunner, who's an American, Nathan Chen. Almost better than that, he happens to be a Chinese-American. And he was, of course, in Beijing, going for gold, pressure-packed, and people were building up the anticipation on social about this routine that he was going to do, I guess, to some Elton John music. 
And I have to tell you, I have mentioned this before, I really like the Winter Olympics. I love hockey. I think the figure skating, just the high pressure, it's just a pressure cooker, right? And I guess Chen knew exactly how well he had to do. And if he hit his marks, he would be the gold medalist. But if he screwed up, the thing spirals and you lose, right? It's just like one false move or step. And it's the difference between gold and nothing in this case. This is the type of thing that I think is the high drama and excitement of the Olympics. And to have a Chinese-American going for gold on the soil of the Chinese Communist Party and all of it, I mean, it's the exact type of thing that I would want to watch. And I will confess to you right now, I was very tempted because it was going to be live on NBC. I'm sitting there in my hotel room, and it's after 11 o'clock, maybe getting close to midnight. I forget exactly what time it was. And I thought about it. I, like, glanced over at the remote control. But I've also told you guys the reasons why I'm not watching this year. And it has nothing to do with any animosity, of course, toward our athletes and Team USA. I want them to do as well as possible. I wanted Nathan Chen to go there and just kill it, crush it. It's the fact that those games are being allowed to happen. In that place, with the genocide ongoing and the other horrific abuses, and so I kept the TV off. I didn't watch. Now, the good news is, Nathan Chen won, and the reviews were rave. Apparently, he just nailed it. And I saw a quick video on social of him finishing his routine with a huge smile, just that look. I did it. The relief, the elation, and in came the scores, gold medal. Good for him. Congratulations, Nathan Chen. He's also reportedly just like the nicest guy, super polite, Lovely to be around. So that's the type of person you want representing the country. And now he's an Olympic champion with a gold medal. One of now four that Team USA has won. They were at zero last time we checked in. They've won four. They're at 10 medals overall. So climbing the charts right there. You love to see it. But I did not literally see it for political reasons, which I'm not happy about. But that's my line in the sand this year. Go USA, but I'm not watching The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this break. Stay tuned. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show from Atlanta, Georgia, today and tomorrow. Thanks for listening. We caught up earlier today on the program with our colleague Bill Malugin national correspondent for Fox News. He's based in L.A., but it feels like he's based at the southern border. We got some updates from him on the Biden border crisis. Here's part of what Malugin told us. I just wonder your reaction, just from a reporter standpoint, not your opinion, but how you think. This might seem like a small thing, the changing of a mission statement, but I would be willing to bet that will probably percolate within some of the communities that you cover. And I wonder how you think that small detail might play among Border Patrol, for example? Oh, well, it's just more of the same if you think about it. I mean, look what happened to ICE's mission statement, right? I mean, they used to be the agency tasked with uh, removing illegal aliens from the country and tracking down criminals and removing them from the country. Now, you know, I talk to ICE agents all the time who tell me they feel like they've been turned into a glorified, you know, travel booking service because uh, their enforcement and removal operations branch, ERO, 
they're now the ones who are mass releasing single adults all over the place, like what we saw in Brownsville and San Antonio Airport. That is the direct opposite of what they signed up to do. Then, yes, you look at Border Patrol. They signed up to be driving you know, up and down the border in ATVs and trucks looking for uh, cartel members smuggling drugs into the country or criminals trying to sneak in and camouflage clothing. What are most of them doing now? They're social workers holding clipboards, doing paperwork as uh, hundreds of family units show up in their patrol area every single day, and there's not nearly as many of them uh, patrolling the front line. Now we have this new, you know, USCIS, who they're the, they're the agency tasked with uh, conducting interviews with migrants for their asylum claims, and they have now basically wiped out all language in their mission statement that has anything to do with upholding the law. Yeah, security uh, but, enforcement, I mean, that's out. Yeah, and it's just more, I mean, keep in mind, when Joe Biden was a candidate, remember what he said on the debate stage, we should surge the border. We should surge it. If people want to come here, they should come. Um, And that's exactly what happened. Let's take a look back at some of these statistics, and Fox has been reporting this today. You were tweeting about it earlier. These are preliminary data pieces from ICE. You just invoked ICE. This, I think, is pretty extraordinary, and I want people – it's much easier to explain on TV when you can put a graphic up, but if folks will just listen to these numbers. Last fiscal year, in fiscal year 2020, there were 458,000, so, you know, getting close to half a million encounters of illegal immigrants at the border, almost getting in the ballpark of 500,000 encounters. There were, in that same fiscal year – about 186,000 deportations of illegal immigrants out of the United States. So 458,000 encounters, 185,000 deportations. Now, let's talk about fiscal year 21. This is the Biden administration. There were 1.7 million encounters with illegal immigrants, so we are now more than tripling that number. 1.7 million encounters up from 458,000 the previous year, and deportations down to 55,590. So the illegal immigrant encounters at the border more than tripled under the Biden administration, primarily in fiscal year 21, but deportations were cut by way over half over that same period of time. So illegal immigration massively spiking up, deportations, expulsions, way, way down. Bill, that really tells the story, doesn't it? It does. And actually, if you go deeper, when you look at those fiscal year 2021 deportations, you know, about 56,000, only about 22,000 of them were under President Biden. Keep in mind, a few months of that fiscal year were still when President Trump was in office. And if you take those, those, those few months under Trump, I think it's like 30,000 or so were still under Trump. So the number that the Biden administration actually, you know, deported from the country is much, much smaller than that 56,000. And part of that reason, if I'm not mistaken, Bill, is that the department at DHS and the Biden administration, they have put out memos saying we are going to de-emphasize deportation in general, and we are going to create new categories of illegal immigrants, even those who are convicted of additional crimes, new categories of those who are not eligible for deportation. And I saw just as one example, we had someone scrawl swastikas all over Union Station in Washington, D.C. the other day. Turns out it's an illegal immigrant of Mexican uh, heritage. It's American, actually a Mexican national who had been deported previously, had been convicted of multiple uh, crimes previously, 
not eligible for deportation under these new rules from the Biden administration. I mean, that's that's one guy. But I think that might help illustrate the approach under Team Biden. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. I mean, they've you know, they've completely limited who and where and when ICE can go after folks. There's no more workforce and site, uh, you know, workforce site raids, that sort of a thing. They really only want them going after aggravated felons and national security threats. And Secretary Mayorkas himself just said a few weeks ago that just being in the country illegally is not grounds for being deported. And another thing is um, one of the reasons why the numbers are going to be lower is because a lot of people have been removed via Title 42. Expulsions don't count as um, removals or deportations. It's a different classification. However, that doesn't matter because Title 42 also existed in fiscal year 2020. That was the first year of the, t- the pandemic. So you look at fiscal year 2020 and 21, both had, had Title 42, and you yep. see the difference in the numbers. You see the difference. One is, I, b- I believe you said 100 and, uh, what is it, 185,000 or something like that, or 166,000. The yes. other is just 56,000. That's right. Yeah, you nailed it. So, yeah, those, those are the numbers. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you you can't you can't blame it. You can't blame the blame the low numbers on Title Forty Two because both presidents had Title Forty Two under their administrations, and both years have drastically different numbers. And you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you go from one point seven million encounters to I think a four hundred fifty eight thousand. So you have a massive, massive, massive increase in migrant encounters at the border and a massive drop in enforcement and removals from the country and that just goes to show the it reflects the difference in priorities our full interview with bill malugin of fox news who's been covering the border more closely really than anyone is available online part of the free podcast every day on demand again no charge guy com, foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts when we come back the home stretch it is in fact guy's night out here at extra in atlanta And we're going to actually run Christine's idea past one of the bosses here. The cookie crawl, the trolley drinking from bar to bar that she wants to organize. She's going to make her pitch. I don't know why we're allowing this, but we're allowing this. And that's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition from Atlanta. And the programming director here at our affiliate, Extra 1063, is Matt Edgar. Last time we were down here, he was kind enough to swing by. Last time I was here, Matt, I was throwing out a first pitch for the Braves. Braves Cardinals, Thursday night. Awesome. Started the stra- it started in somewhat the momentum towards our world championship, and I'm not kidding about that. No, I, I yeah. know you're not kidding, and I am still very, very pleased to have helped bring this city a championship in my own little way. But I was nervous. I was extremely nervous for that experience because I did not want to bounce that pitch. I didn't for the you record. did not. So that, as soon as I threw the ball, <laughs> it left my hand. I said, okay, we're good. I can have a great rest of the visit. But I had, you know, my, my stomach was in knots. I'm less nervous today, but still a little bit with some butterflies here because we've got this event this evening for – some listeners at the station, yep. some sponsors of the Correct. station, and a lot of people here on the team at Extra, where I guess there's this celebrated chef who's going to be cooking for us. One of only 74 master chefs in the whole country. 
Daryl Schuler, going to be awesome. Big fan. He was live in studio yesterday with our morning show, and he cannot wait to get his hands on you and uh, get you in the kitchen. So this is what I'm worried about. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> you're like, oh, can you say a few words tonight? Yes, I, I say many words all the time. Saying a few words is an, is an easy thing for me. But I guess there's going to be cameras and cooking and kitchen where, what do I have to like sort of do a Bobby Flay impression? Yeah, exactly. Here? I, I, I'm curious what the chef has in store for you. Me too. As well, yeah. I was hoping you could tell no, me. No, I, I, even I'm in the dark on this one. I hate to say it. I can't wait to see the reaction. The crowd is juiced. The reaction for tonight has been awesome. I do wish we had the cookie crawl after. I think it'd be a great addition next time through. Okay. We've got to make that happen. So so let's, let's <laughs> talk about that yes. in just a second. I just want to clarify, I am not doing the cooking for the people tonight. That's the chef. I guess I'm going to be doing some interactive something. Great. I will have a report yes, tomorrow. Yes, and it'll be on film everybody all of america uh, will get to see it at some point yes, yes sir. what a treat that welcome be. back by the way officially great to have you in the building it is again it is awesome to be here and i just have to say to toot your horn and the whole team here at dickie broadcasting it was great to see david earlier the big boss here and just the team we joined this station basically at the onset this is a brand yep. new station Last april in this format in news talk conservative talk and it went from a non-existent station in not, that non-existent, in that that's not exaggerating yet, to now really some strong growth. Absolutely, we and, have legitimate ratings, legitimate sponsor and client success. I mean, we're making real money, and that's the whole key in radio, right? That's why we survive every and, business. And, uh, so it's awesome. And in a short, less than a year. I mean, we're April nineteenth will be our one year anniversary. You were here day one or on the station day one. Heck, it was amazing. You did a you came down an affiliate trip in June. We were a couple months older, but you were like, I want to get to Atlanta, and that is rare. I've been in this business thirty years, dealt with guys like Don Imus. Back in the day, trips to Atlanta, I put his stuff together, and you are as accommodating and as open as it gets. I mean, you, you, you literally said, I'm coming to Atlanta. I want to visit my new affiliate uh, down in the ATL, and that is just unheard of. So it, uh, big well, props I'm, to you as well. And Glad I have, to have if, you. if you're a programming director at any of our great stations around the country, ask me to come out. We, we love doing this sort of thing. We really appreciate being on across the country and having stations as a part of the Guy Benson Show family. And it's been gratifying, I have to say, to see – the growth of this station, the growth of this show in this market, people are listening yes. to Extra. No question. Uh, which is which is pretty cool to be a part of. Now, we might ruin all of that, though, <laughs> if, if we move forward with this plan that I'm shocked that you've endorsed because you were listening on the home stretch the other day. Producer Christine, this is why we had you on. She booked you. Producer Christine, I think, is a little grumpy that she's not down here on this trip. I'm bumming a little bit as well. Yeah, we maybe next time. We're we, kindred spirits, you know, producers, you know, behind the scenes. We, us and Max and Wyatt uh, and David. Now we're all it is. We're all sort of together, the behind the glass crew. Yes, and yeah. she, and she is a real character. I love and her, and she's a handful. And so she, I think, would like to be a part of this. I think you would very much enjoy her being a part of this. But she was joking that next time. We would have something like this, maybe a restaurant and a chef, and then afterwards she would run, I don't know, it's almost like a undergraduate college-style <laughs> bar crawl bar party crawl. Yeah. for those listeners interested with trolleys and maybe like wristbands. And I'm imagining like um, like neon glowing necklaces and weird sure. stuff like that. 
and you like this idea. I love it. The cookie crawl. Got to get out there, get funky, get our groove on. Yeah, no, nobody could lead it better than, than Christine as well. Yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. It'd go from the, the nice night, the nice dinner, going to be some great food and wine tonight, some great sophisticated talk with Guy Benson, and then we loosen the tie, and we, we all load on a bus. In Atlanta, the big bone is the fur bus, we call it. We get on the fur bus, and we start hopping. The buck, fur bus? The fur bus, Christine, called. are you taking notes? Been around for like 30 oh. years. This is like a dream for me. I mean, does it seem real to you now, Guy, that we're getting endorsed? I mean, this to me is a no-brainer. Um, and don't forget, I can give everybody their a personalized flask with your picture on it. I thought about that. Are you going to pay for I that mean, out of pocket, Christine? All that money you're saving by not buying a Super Bowl ticket? Um. So... <laughs> We, we're going to have a, we're, we'll have some sort of budget, of course. Well, if sponsors will flip the bill. Are you kidding? We start hitting up a few of the liquor and, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, alcohol. Oh, uh, the long drink. The long drink flask guy with Guy's face on flasked. it. Absolutely. Uh, I, this is coming together before my eyes, and it, it worries me a lot, Matt, because I'm sure you guys know what you're doing, and, you know, the Dickies know what they're doing in this space. But do you have the correct size insurance policy for what – would be required handing anything over to producer Christine, let alone a group of moving people plied with alcohol. No doubt in this day and age, liability is a big thing and I'd have to check with HR, but we would make it happen, uh-huh. Christine. Be assured we'd make it happen. You're uh, down here. Guy's HR. been here twice. The third time's a charm. Christine's coming to, coming to the ATL soon. I'm surprised that Christine did not hang up her phone in terror just hearing HR because I think that uh. that's, that's an ongoing concern for you, Christine. Yeah, it's like my nightmare. <laughs> you say the words HR and cookie, you know, the cookie crumble. So let's let's just keep that out of it. Listen, guys, I got a good plan here. And I feel like it's a moneymaker of some sort. I'm just not sure how. Uh-huh. Um, Matt, I'm sure you know that I have a lot of ideas. A guy likes to call them schemes or scams. <laughs> That's one way to put them, right. No. I have some good ideas. And, you know, don't, hello, I'm selling my house. I mean, I, I think of some good good things out there. So let me workshop this a little more. But I say the first cookie crawl should be in the ATL. Well, let's do that brainstorming off the air, right? I think it's good to have uh, sort of maybe off the record. You can You can float your ideas, and we don't need the whole country listening to them. I think that seems probably like the best plan. But – you guys can connect. I'm always willing to come back down here. So we can talk about that, Christine. Last question briefly, Matt, here in Georgia and Atlanta generally. We were talking with Joey Jones earlier, just the, the afterglow of the championship uh, here for the Braves, the championship for the Bulldogs in college yeah. football. I mean, when was the last time Georgia sports were on this level, if if ever? Not. I've been here my whole life. Not. I remember the 19, I was uh, 10 years old in 1980 when Herschel and the Bulldogs won their one and only national title. Obviously here in 95 when the Braves won their one and only world title. My Falcons, my Hawks have never come close. They're another level. We are riding high. The poor Hawks are in the middle of their NBA season. And nobody cares. They could win a lot. They could lose a lot. We'd forgive them because we're just still riding that bulldog in Braves High. And there's a lot of crossover. There is no doubt. Braves country expands the whole southeast. And Georgia is right here in the middle of the Bulldog Nation. And it's, uh, yeah. And you, you're a good friend. Um, Mary Catherine. Uh, yeah, Mary Catherine, big bull. I thought of her often uh, during this run. is just phenomenal. And we are the, um, our 
uh, sister station, the Sports Talk Station, 680 The Fan, is not only the Braves' flagship, we are also the official Sports Talk Station for the Bulldogs. So we had guys in Indianapolis for the national title. Obviously had guys in Houston for both uh, when the Braves made the trip to play the Astros in the World Series. So we lived it and breathed it up close. The trophy has been here a couple times. Oh, cool. Yeah, we almost had it there tonight. By the way, at the guys' night out, no very kidding. close to having the trophy there. It was already committed. Uh, Brave said, oh, if you had a different date, but um, maybe next oh, time. That yeah, would have been amazing. It would have been awesome to have it at the, the, the venue tonight. And been. I will let you know, just for the record, we did reach out to Kirby Smart, uh, the head coach of, of the course. University of Georgia, just to see if he could come in and do an interview on the show. We got an immediate response, which is great. <laughs> it was not a hard no, but it was... The coach doesn't do a lot of interviews, yeah. apparently. So it was a big ask, but we tried. I love it. And so for all the Dogs fans listening right now, we tried. Maybe next time. Maybe we can bring Kirby Smart into the studio with the World Series championship trophy for the Guy Benson show. Right before the cookie crawl. Love it. Yeah, that, that's, that's sort of the, the ultimate goal. Matt, great to see you. And Welcome back, guys. It's Thanks, awesome buddy. to be here. Thanks, Christine. And we got to run because we've got guys night out to prepare for. I don't know what is going to happen. I hope they have an apron or something for me because I've got my, my nice jacket and tie, and I don't know what's going to be flying around in the kitchen. There'll be video, I guess. We'll bring you that full report tomorrow, of course, probably on the home stretch here on The Guy Benson Show from Atlanta and Extra 106.3. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. Back here tomorrow. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.